new sites, smaller sites are opening all the time. And I've, Dave Blasingame got a taste of this a while back where they're making commitments to do work. And now once you get in the door, you're finding that they may not actually have either the in-house expertise. They may have the equipment. You can buy equipment. You can IQ, OQ, PQ. Sure. That's no, they'll even sell you the protocols to do it. However, the depth and experience to trust, you know, that you entrust them with your process, your timelines, especially in those expedited projects. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts, as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Welcome to CMC Live. Today, we have a special new format, Lively and Informative. So joining us here today, as always, is Miranda and Brian. Hi, guys. First off, the, the market for the manufacturer and supply of APIs is changing rapidly still, continuously. Uh, and there are many factors influencing these changes. But precisely what the major trends you, uh, you should know and be aware of and how you can use them to your advantage are, in essence, what we'll be discussing here. So in this podcast, our industry API consulting gurus uh, give their views and latest overviews. So and being aware of these trends is important. Perhaps what's even more important is how you leverage opportunities they bring and, and how to react to them. Of course, it depends on your current engagement in API outsourcing. Are you already fully engaged? Or are you on the stage considering a change? Uh, today, we have a group of our drug substance services experts with about 150 plus years of experiences. So folks, I'd like to go around and introduce most everyone here was on a previous podcast to have interested. We have Dan Torok, uh, who joined us previously um, on the podcast called The White Code Effect is Real. Hello, Dan. Good afternoon, everyone. I believe I heard Dave Adams, who joined us uh, per, for a previous podcast. It was called Trust the Process with the Process Chemist. Yes. Hi. Happy to be here. Hello, everyone. Okay. I see uh, Jim Mensel, who joined us for the first two of our podcasts starting this series, uh, Expediting Regulatory Drug Starting Materials and um, Expedited Drug Development and Breakthrough in Orphan Drugs. Hello, Jim. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. And last but not least... David Blasengame. Hi, everyone. Good afternoon. Okay, so we'll get started. So folks, we covered a little bit about your backgrounds in some of the previous podcasts, and you'll be able to find them here. Let's get a little bit deeper and have a discussion on a range of recommendations and how to best use the current trends and situations to the benefit. Perhaps let's start with what you guys maybe brought up earlier, the, the landscape of API manufacturing and available capacities. An important thing, Ed, that really people need to think about is you know, a lot of a lot of the internet sites for these companies are really good, domestic and foreign, right? And you really need to understand what they're offering. You know, what equipment do they really have? And I, I think beyond that, if you're if your uh, process has special needs like high pressure, temperature, you really need to make sure that their equipment can actually do what you need it to do. And beyond that, if there's specific configurations you need, you know, you, if you know your process enough, you should find out if they can actually set up a train that will run your process. Because a lot of people will try to sell you anything, and these are often plants that are multi-use but were purpose-built in the past for some specific drug. And your product might be a skewed fit. So it's really important to assess the places you're going to and whether they really can be a fit for what you want to do. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about the competitive marketplace out there, the API marketplace? Is it is it competitive? There's a, a multitude of small producers, right? And they specialize in, in making niche APIs in some cases, which led to intense competition. The market's growing. Can you talk to anyone here, I guess, basically? Can you talk to maybe that, but the competition going on out there and how that's evolving? Yeah, I mean, I, I know, Dan, you've done a lot of work with us in, in this type of discussions with clients. you have any, any thoughts on that? I know yourself was involved in quite a few searches. No, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there, we're certainly seeing a very rapid change in the API CMO world. I think if you went out with an RFP maybe two years ago and you threw this RP, RFP out to eight vendors, you'd have eight proposals back fairly rapidly. I was part of one of these and we threw out the RFP to about seven or eight people and two immediately just said no. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't that they took a week to look at the chemistry. It just said, no, we don't have capacities. Uh, a couple others actually looked at the capacity and said, we're really sorry, we can't bid. We'd love to work this project. It looks like a great fit. We don't see volumes opening up for another two years. Some of the other guys can comment, but I've been doing CMO manufacturing for most of my career in one form or another, and I've never seen this in the small molecule world before. I've I've been bumped out of some of the more premier sites or told they didn't want to look at it, uh, but now to have this large number who seem to be filling up, there, there's certainly some large dynamic change within the industry going on. Yeah, I mean, I think about it, you know, Dave, um, Blasengame, you're, you're working with a client that's going to be getting into this and, and you're having to get that message across that the landscape has changed. You know, I mean, you're now looking around. Are you seeing the same thing in particular with the U.S. sites? Yeah, definitely, um, especially with a couple of projects that have been more barter related, right? The ongoing trend is to onshore all those programs as well. That's a lot of programs taking up a lot of capacity potentially. So it's what's, I think, gotten harder. So first of all, we're getting proposal turnarounds much slower. That's if they're interested. And I think that's because they have a large number of requests from a lot of folks, big and small. And everyone is trying to figure out whether or not it's got real potential or not with government funding um, and whether or not they can actually tie up resources for those projects. That's been the other challenge is convincing them that it's a real project and that they should um, set aside some resources for it. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that. So, you know, I sit in on quite a few BD calls and there are a, and Miranda, you can you can agree here if you want, but there are a surprising amount of small virtual companies that have these projects and, and they're all passionate. They all believe in them and they're all taking up space, which Dave is what you just mentioned. I mean, in the past, I mean, I don't know, Miranda, are you seeing a trend in the types of requests we get? Because you can see how that directly filters into what these guys are talking about. Yeah, for sure. We've been getting a lot of requests for CMO searches. So the small companies probably either tried themselves to find a place or and couldn't find a place. Um, that might be why they're coming to us to see if we have a better end or um, different companies to look at. I think one of the interesting requests we had a number of, I think it was a month or two ago, Brian Miranda, and I'm not sure if our drug substance guys even got to hear about this one. Uh, Prospective client called us. They had something in the BARDA realm. And their, their drug substance, though, was, as the guy put it, it's a generic. 
And he wanted to know, where do I find a generic drug substance that's made in the U.S.? It's, I mean, I don't mean to be mean, but it's hard to not laugh at that one, because for those of us who have been in the industry, I mean, I, I think we could probably put our heads together and maybe name a few generic manufacturers in, in Europe, maybe. But where are they all made? And it's something you kind of take for granted. It's just, and Jim had mentioned in a previous conversation about how the trend into investing back in the infrastructure of these, you know, stateside sites, it, it's not there at the level, at least that we see in sites abroad. And I know that's a, that's a broad paintbrush to, to, you know, to make that kind of statement, but I, you know, I'm from the drug product realm. So I have a little different perspective, but, but in a, in a sense, it's very similar. I see the same thing in drug product. And it's like, for me, so Dave uh, Adams, you're, you're on the call and I know you're working in a particular, on a particular situation where you're transferring a product in to the U.S. Do you find that the site that you're transferring this process to has resource constraints or do I mean, because you represent a, a project that we now are transferring within the United States to another site. Are you seeing some of the same problems in terms of capacities? They're definitely tight, and they've told us this. And they're they're booked out, you know, days, day by day for the next year. And they say we can't slip a week. We, you know, if and if we don't get our product into the schedule, they've told us it's going to be a year and a half till we can get it in. They're they're definitely packed. And even with our product, the other processes that a company has to succeed at. You know, all the paperwork, the uh, quality control, they have to have all of that capacity along with the equipment. And even that's putting constraints on their corporate business possibilities that you can tell that the entire corporation is very busy. Yeah. And, and you can't afford any missteps or it could potentially set a project back, you know, six months to a year. And, and, and it kind of puts puts you on alert that makes sure that that process and those deliverables are ready as they're needed. I know the same thing happens on the drug product side. So I have a question and it might be a silly question for the drug substance side, but does it matter if the company has fast track designation to the CMOs to get their product in and made first? It's a good question, Miranda. You know, honestly, a lot of CMOs don't really even know what that means yet. It's really something where it's more an awareness on the sponsor's part. But, um, you know, I don't know that the CMOs are as savvy on that whole area yet, at least not the ones I've seen in the U.S. It seems like that's something that the the awareness and the activity is driven more by the sponsor or by their consultants. I, I think your very good point was certainly the American manufacturers. I'm not sure they fully wrap their head around it. I'm seeing a a small handful of European manufacturers who, whose business development team seems to get it. They, they understand that if they, if they get a piece of this action, they're going to be locked in for longer than other things most likely because they're going to be moving at 100 miles an hour to get there. So there won't be the time for a secondary supplier to come in. And they also realize they're closer to that commercialization point, where, which is where every, every drug substance CMO wants to be. You want to have your plant filled with commercial products because they're stable. So, I mean, there's a few who get it, but for the most part, I don't think there are. Miranda, you might be able to find a couple you could manage to uh, sweet talk your way into. 
with with the special background, but it's it, they're going to be few and far between. I think. I agree, Dan. I I think the Europeans. Well, you know, of course, the EU has a mission statement to become the the top API manufacturing location in the world. That's a mission statement in the EU. And I see the investment following that mission statement. And I, I, I agree about their awareness. And the funny thing is, fast track is an American concept, and yet Europeans have latched onto it as a business opportunity more so than the U.S. has, at least in the, on the supply side, not necessarily in the sponsor side, but on the CMO side. I think CMO has been very slow to latch onto that. You know, I, I know in speaking for the drug product side, one of the things that, that we notice is that when, you know, you've been doing it long enough, you're used to the same names, you're used to the same comfort zone, you know competency, and you go to, you drive your clients over to a site that you know the project will be well in hand, but new sites, smaller sites are opening all the time. And I think Blazing Game got a taste of this a while back, where they're making commitments to do work. And now once you get in the door, you're finding that they may not actually have either the in-house expertise. They may have the equipment. You can buy equipment. You can IQ, OQ, PQ. Sure. That's no, they'll even sell you the protocols to do it. However, the depth and experience to trust, you know, that you entrust them with your process, your timelines, especially in those expedited projects, you know, that's something else I know in the drug product side, we're always leery of. There's a new game in town. Okay, well, who's there? What exactly do they know? What exactly do they do? So, Dave, you had an interesting experience about a month ago. Great people, nice people, but, you know, am I, am I close here? You are right on the money. So, they, you know, uh, sold, they could do everything and anything. Turns out that the client was going to end up funding the build-out of that plant and the hiring of people who could then do the what they said that they could, when in fact that they could not, not at that moment in time. In his, in his mind, it was something that was going to be, you know, uh, possible in the future. They just needed a client to get them there. And, and that's why we keep coming back to the same names for exactly that reason, right? Right. And that's why the busy, when the good ones are busy. Yeah. Right. Everybody says it. the good ones are very busy. And it, it's, you know, I don't know how many of you guys have been involved in plant build outs and plant qualifications. It is not a slam dunk. It is, especially when you're trying to retrofit an existing site, existing utility loops, all that stuff, it is not as advertised. So if, you, if you're betting your project success on build-out space that's not quite realized at a site, that's another thing you have to look at. You have to take it seriously about the risk. What you're saying, Brian, I think ties in really well to what Dave said and what Jim said earlier. That being, I, I think Jim was one who said the U.S. sites need some infrastructure built into them still. They need some updating. They, they, they need to be modernized, be it in containment or in utilities. And that, that can be done by someone with money. There's no doubt about it. That's one of those great parts of the world where if you have enough money, you can buy stuff. The problem is, and I saw it, we saw it from a client recently, even if you build it out, you, you now need, as Dave said, you have to hire that person to grow it. There's just not a lot of people in the U.S. with the expertise of sitting on this panel right now today. It's we, we Brian, you and I were both told straight up, we, we landed one of our more recent clients because they did a job search for six months and could not find anyone who had the resumes of the four of us sitting on the panel that they could just pull in who wanted to go work for them. It, it's 
the numbers the number of people who have manufacturing background in the US of small molecules is just small and diminishing rapidly uh, because all the jobs have been offshored for so long, plants were closed. I agree, Dan. It's a vanishing breed. It's painful for me as an American to see that happen, but you know, the schools are not jam-packed with chemistry majors either. So, you know, it's it's I can give you an analogy. I mean, we had a place up in Connecticut, a cabin in the mountains, and the guy that took care of the cabin was an old boiler maker. He was in his 90s. He was hired back by companies in Connecticut to teach kids how to re-rivet boilers that they were reactivating, not from coal, but for natural gas. So he went in and taught these kids in his 90s how to actually do rivets inside and outside a boiler. I feel like we, in our age, you know, where we are, some of us are 50 plus, I think that we're going to be the ones that are going to have to train a younger generation for how to do this stuff because there simply are not a lot of veterans that know how to do it. And most of them, most, a lot of my friends have, have retired. They just are out of the business. And the reality of it is, it's not something you're going to teach somebody to do in 15. I had a client who literally asked me, Dan, I want you to teach me to review batch records as fast as you do. And I said, fine. The first part is you have to write a hundred of them. You look at somebody like Dave Adams on here. I learned writing batch records from Dave Adams in, in a previous life, a lot of it. And if there's any way Dave knows the number of batch records he's written at this point, it'd be amazing. Because as I tell people, I've done enough of them. I've done enough of them wrong. I didn't mean to do them wrong, but I, I still made mistakes and you learn from it. But without doing it, it it's a much slower process to learn. But you can see it's okay. So now I've kind of put two and two together and I've, I've come up with three. So basically now you get it right. We talked about at the top of this call, we talked about how, you know, there's been a lot of investment in infrastructure and manufacturing abroad. And that's been the trend for years. This is not a, a, a few year anomaly. I mean, that has been the trend. Asia, enough said, in fact, Blazengame just did a, he did a whole podcast on that. And then, and so now we, Industry's grown accustomed to API is manufactured elsewhere. So now you can understand that now you, you've basically starved uh, the US API manufacturing capacity because you've moved it over for, for a better break, a better, better cost. I mean, it comes down to unit cost, right? But then you think about it, all those jobs just, they do, they go away because there's not a great demand for them here in the US. And I don't know of many people that have gone and said, I can't wait to go work in that province over there in that, in that Asian company, because I can do that work. No, of course not. They're rethinking what they want to do. And as a result, there is a gap. And, you know, look, I mean, I think about the trades, right? There, there's a big push to get more people into the trades, kind of Jim to your riveting point, right? I mean, the, the last guys that put the last rivet in the Titanic, well, they have since gone and, and that, and that skill set has gone with them. And, you know, and there's a gap, there's a gap in our, you know, real tradesmen, real true electricians, carpentry, plumbing. And well, who's to say that that doesn't happen in pharmaceutical manufacturing? Good operators are worth their weight in gold. And I don't know about you guys, but when you're looking at a batch being manufactured and you're told it's being run on a Sunday afternoon, well, your experienced people are home because they've earned the right not to work on a Sunday afternoon. So you have to babysit that process more. But the reality is there is a gap. And that was my point earlier about, you know, these new places that'll pop up. One of the things that we're seeing that I thought was really interesting, and, and Dan, you can comment on this, are these VC groups that are trying, you know, the speculative buying and trying to see how much they can squeeze out of a site if it's a viable candidate for manufacture. I mean, 
you know, that's got a whole host of other problems. I think it's like the question comes down to, so, you know, what can we bring to people to, to deal with this? So one thing for sure is the experience. I mean, like Dan was saying, you know, you can't, each of us has different types of experience with this. You can't, you can't just make, you can't just impart that experience on somebody else. You know, you have to, you can, you can mentor, but I mean, what, I think what we can bring to people, to clients in particular, you know, is that we sort of know what to look for. And, you know, we can sort of sniff out when something is real and when it's not, at least begin to wonder if we need to do a little bit of sniffing around. And, uh, you know, the point about places that advertise they can do things and can't really do them. I mean, that's, you know, the world is rife with places like that. And I think the API industry in the U.S. is kind of getting there. So I think one thing we can do is at least sound out the places and understand what's real. You know, among the places that will talk to clients inside a project, okay, so among those places, who's real? Who's got staff? And if they don't have all the capability, can we, with the sponsor, fill those gaps so that it's a successful enterprise for them? Right, because it can't necessarily be, uh, you know, a, a dead issue we're moving on because those options to move on become more and more limited. And, you know, I know we've got a couple of, of clients and I, and I look at the panel here. And, and, and to a person on this panel from the drug substance team, every one of you, and I've watched it happen, has mentored either directly or indirectly the client or the CMO, and they're learning from it. And one of the reasons that, that we stay as long as we do with our clients is because it's not an adversarial relationship. It, it's a mentoring relationship. I mean, you know, there are several of you that are involved in, in interviewing on behalf of our clients to try to help them build that experience. But even when they hire, you know, immediately, if, if you're still going to be there, you're still going to be imparting that, that, that experience and that knowledge. I mean, there's nobody here that has less than 20 years experience in this group. And, and that's a low number. Okay. And, and so it's, it's that ability and that willingness to impart that experience. I think that's a real big message. I look at, at Dave Adams, who's doing that transfer in the U S I mean, Dave, I know that there isn't as in-depth in-house expertise for the process that you're transferring. And so you are by default in a mentoring capacity, right? Correct. It's been an observation of mine for many, many years, how uh, I've watched many people come into the industry from academia, bright, smart people. And in the first two or three years, it makes some pretty big uh, goofs because universities don't teach physical operations, you know, how to pump a batch from one place to another, how to do a, a, a physical filtration on a large scale. As we're talking expertise, the, the learning curve to understand a, the chemical engineering in a plant, it, it's sort of a cross between chemists that understand chemistry and engineers that understand heat transfer and uh mechanical properties of fluids, somewhere in the middle is the person that can make it come together. And it takes a while for that to be accrued. And yes, I'm seeing it now in various plants. You know, I've mentioned things to people and they look at me and say, oh, never heard of that technique, never thought of that, or I didn't know that kind of equipment existed. And I thought, as Dan's comment, People say, well, can you give us some training? Can you give us some learning? I think, yeah, but it would take months and months to explain everything that's been happening over the past 30 or so years. And if you lose the practice, you lose the people, and then you end up with a bunch of 
plants with equipment. Right. So moving a little further though. So I'm trying to get the trends here, right? So we're, you know, let's talk about what, what do you think the industry looks like in, in 10 years from now, not even 20, but 10 years, even less right now, I would think that, I don't know. I saw stats, 50% of APIs and, you know, for drug product in the U S come from Asia. It seems like it's growing at a faster pace than the overall market growth. Right. Dan talked about the talent and the dearth of talent here and the, you know, the, the basically the, the, the training and those things that happen that, that aren't there anymore. You know, you're talking about Asia, the talent pool of engineers, they have their scientists, it's pretty high, cost structures lower, right? And labor and materials lower. Is And there's also a discussion about the, the um, buying APIs produced in Asia and the pitfalls there, right? And we all know what those are. So do you expect to see more Eastern migration or is there some sort of balance or... How do you th- how do you think the industry starts to look the supply chain moving forward and say ten years from now? Quick first stab at it, maybe. I actually think the trend's got some momentum swinging the other way, out of uh, Shanghai and out of China, and maybe back into the states or at least ex-China, whether it's Europe or, or America. I'm not sure yet, but Peter Navarro since 2012 has had a real big push to move things out of China and secure our own supply chain, and he's not just talking about APIs. It's also talking about raw materials, right? Because all raw materials are essentially now coming from China. And that's the real problem. You can say APIs may not be, but the truth is the starting materials are. So if your starting materials are coming from China, essentially your API is also, no matter where you're actually making the API. Uh, It's like uh, iPhones and where they're actually manufactured versus where they're put together, right? It's not always the same thing. Um, So I don't know, in 10 years from now, I hope that that trend continues. It would be nice if we could secure our own supply chain. Right. So be that said, Dan mentioned, I think Jim did, as far as the facilities, the, net, the need for upgrades, the, the talent there. How does that work? Right. We, we have these uh, grand plans to bring you know, supply chain back to control it, co- control just the, the quality as well. What's the plan on the other side, though? I'm going to step out of, uh, on a limb and put something out there that may make me sound like a heretic. I'm wondering if this investment that needs to be done is going to be done by Europeans and perhaps even Asian manufacturers. You, you, I, I don't know if this is the case, but I could see a world where Brian, Brian and I may be two of the oldest on here. I never thought I'd see a day when a Nissan was made in the U S or, or a Mercedes maybe you. Yeah. You may start to see that happen because you, Certainly in the raw material areas and some of the simpler APIs, I, I hesitate to say they're simple to make. I mean, uh, because Brian will never let me live it down. But uh, you could you could rapidly bring something in and set it up and get it going, certainly for raw materials. There's, there's some old facilities that you could revamp for raws. Uh, but it's going to take someone who knows how to do it to do it. You know, I, the, 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 the whole recent episode with the, uh, was, it, was it an Eastman facility or an old Kodak facility that was going to be put over? That's a pretty good example of probably how not to do it. But if you could find somebody who wants to stay in the industry and has the capital to put in and then can support that build. Uh, you know, I saw it in my career with the build out of the Hovion facility in New Jersey. You may like them, you may hate them, that's a whole other thing. But when, when they built that facility, people moved from around the world to help start it up. 
so that the knowledge base of a company was already there and you weren't having to restart from zero. Maybe it's the way it'll go. I don't know. I, I think what has to happen, Dan, is I think that the industry has to know the demand is there. You know, so let's look at raw materials. And, and, and Dan Blasing made a really good point. So, you know, one of our projects, our, our, our two-star materials do come from Asia. And you guys may know we've had some very serious issues with Providence, you know, faked CFAs and everything. It's just been a, a nightmare for that program. But, you know, we've looked at setting up Western manufacturers. And, um, you know, they are very skittish to get involved because they need to see the demand. And, you know, they know that if they get involved, they're in a marketplace where not only is the playing field uneven, but other countries literally subsidize the industry. So here, you know, you come here in the United States, other than bail bailing out GM or some other massive employer, the United States does not subsidize, you know, the, the CMO. They don't subsidize the fine chemical makers. You either make it or break it on your own here. So they've got to see a business proposition that makes sense to invest in a facility and, and make a piece. So for us, this one thing we wanted to make, you know, yeah, we're getting people interested, but we're paying for all the research. I don't know if the facility is going to be big enough to make enough of it. And the places that can make it, Kodak, for example, they want a metric ton order to start with. So it's, um, I think that a lot of it is the, they need to know that they would get the business as opposed to somebody overseas if they make the investment. And I think that's what's hard is how you prime that well for companies to feel comfortable that they can invest and know they'll get a return on the investment. That's really Why well put. In Asia, you might get your return. Yeah, that that's really well put because the trend has been that way for so long. It's it really has, and and it comes down to cost of goods, right? I mean, it and that's what drives it, unit costs. So, you know, we covered a lot. I mean. It, it's funny, I had kind of envisioned in my head, you know, going through a whole variety of topics. I didn't realize that there were so many aspects of, of just this one topic and, and, and the impact of this and, uh, to, to industry, more importantly, to U.S. industry. Um, I think for me, I, I learned quite a bit from this. Yeah, same thing. My last question for myself here, though, I always like to throw in a regulatory question, though. The you know, the volume of this production increases over time, right? We're going to have to make more drugs over time, populations increasing. Um, but unfortunately, so as a number of issues in quality compliance, you can still find them in the U.S., of course, right? So, which also leads to increases in demands, regulatory demands, expectations, guidances, and expectations there, right? Is there anything anyone has to share? Maybe, you know, some of the trends there based on some of the, the supply chain, any of the regulatory trends that might be... Um, relevant, you know, per, per the discussion? You know, and I'll share something, and it really comes out of the guidance that came out recently for nitrosamines. And, okay, so nitrosamines aside, the guidance is very interesting at what it, at what it leads to. So it's one of the documents I've seen from the FDA, one of the few recently, where they literally talk about the sponsor going back to the source of materials that are used to make their starting materials. So in other words, they're making it clear that even though they don't have visibility beyond the starting material, they expect the sponsor to be tracing the sources of, the, of everything that's being used to make their starting material. Because they're speaking about the water used in plants, nitrosamines, and, and materials that are used as raws. But it's clear that the expectation is that people are going to go further back now and really into a supply chain that's almost opaque to figure out where things are coming from and that there's a stability in that supply chain. So going back to Dave's comment about Asia, I mean, so you, you could have a material that's made in Asia, but then you got to find out where its materials are coming from. So how far back can you and do you go 
And it's it's clear from that guidance the FDA put out that their thinking is that you go back as far as you can to dirt. And that's pretty tough when you're in the U.S. or Western Europe trying to figure out where you are in Asia. I do see that as a trend that the FDA in particular is asking more and more for sponsors about what they can't see and making sure you are looking at it. Yeah, I just have one serious question. How many batch records, Dave Adams, did you actually write? Well, I, I did check it once and, you know, I literally have just processes have put through over 175 different processes. And that's, that's in the last, in a 12 year period. So, and of course they go through revisions and so forth. So. Oh, interesting. About, about 70, 70 different products and over 175 different processes. You know, it, it's, it's funny. So, so my dad's 70, 79 now, and he's still swinging a hammer as a carpenter all over the Island where he's been since 1959 and every job he's either nicked a thumb or, you know, got a, so he's convinced that his DNA is everywhere in that town. And if there's ever a crime in some sort of advanced crime lab, my dad's going to be implicated by default. So it's kind of like that. Your hand is in everything. I want to thank you guys again, Brian, Miranda, obviously, as always, Brian is turning into a polished uh, podcaster here, obviously. Dave, uh, Dave Blasingame, always good. Uh, Dan, David Adams, too. Thanks for the happy hour. He's, he's uh, 10 for 10 or 20 for 20 there. But um, And also, Jim, thanks again. We haven't heard the dog lately, though. Duke, can we get a special, maybe talk to him about coming on next time? We haven't heard him since the first episode. I can ask him to do a cameo appearance. Nobody knocked at the door, but we can always arrange for a knock at the door. You'll First podcast was the best. Yeah, right. Anything that could happen did, and it was fun. So, Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash CMC live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.